Let's continue our worship. Please turn with me to John chapter 6. We find ourselves in a familiar spot as we've worked our way patiently through Jesus' bread of life discourse. And we'll be able to finish next time. (laughs) It will not be this time. But it needs time. We need to patiently work through this. As even I read the text today, verses 48 to 59, there's a lot here for us all to deal with, a lot to comprehend, a lot to convey uh, to others. Some of it will sound familiar, but listen out for how his emphasis changes in this third movement of the discourse, beginning in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is not the bread that came down This is the bread that came from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. You catch the varied emphasis here. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. It's a rather shocking thing to hear. On account of this very text, Christians in the 2nd and 3rd centuries were actually accused by the Roman state and the popular crowd of being cannibals. One Greco-Roman writer, Minucius Felix, preserves for us this popular charge. and In his insightful work entitled Octavius, he captures one of the more popular rumors of what was happening with Christians in their church meetings. Remember, Christianity is new. People don't know what it is. And because they meet in secret, there's a lot of mystery and intrigue about the meetings. One of the most popular rumors spread at the particular time is recorded in these words. And I warn you, it's graphic, what I'm about to read. I now realize there are children who are here, but I also realize that Grimm's fairy tales is about as graphic as what I'll read in this moment as well. So please just humor me. I want you to understand how people misunderstood the Christian faith in its earliest days. I'm reading straight from uh, Minucius Felix. 
Now, the story about the initiation of young novices in the Christian cult is both disgusting and well-known. A baby is concealed in a loaf of bread to deceive unsuspecting new members. The loaf and a knife are placed before the new member, and they tell him to use the knife to cut the bread. When he does, his harmless act of cutting the bread kills the infant. Next, the Christians rush forward to lick up the baby's blood. They rip its body apart and then eat its flesh. Then the new member who has committed this terrible crime is bound by his guilt to a pledge of silence. And these sacred rites are more disgusting than any sacrilege known to Rome. Christians allege Celestius, the man writing or the one speaking in this particular section of the book, murder and eat babies. Now, it's important to understand that these stories about Christian gatherings are not actual descriptions. They are rumors. They are fake. They are false. Christians did not sacrifice babies. These stories are merely propaganda. And though most of the rumors propagated against Christians were baseless, What is interesting in light of history is that this particular story has a theoretical basis. The Romans could actually point to texts like the one that we just read and say, look, see, they are cannibals. It's not difficult to imagine how this practice could be misunderstood and employed to support this rumor. And in fact, The entire Bible, friends, at times, let's be honest, seems to be gratuitously bloody to many. I mean, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Animal sacrifices abound throughout the Pentateuch. The historical books record graphic instances of what many would label ethnic genocide. There's promises of worldwide judgment and the minor prophets in the book of Revelation. And then at the center of the whole Bible, the thing that everybody points to, like the the story which holds it all together is none other than a crucified Lord. Why? Why so violent? How should we respond? There have been a few options down through the centuries. The first one is most popular in our own day. It is to edit it out. The edited out version of the violence of supposed Christianity is well reflected in children's stories that uh, by necessity skip over the violent parts. It's uh, this sense to sanitize things. And basically you replace it with something else. You want to replace all that violence with the positive message of Jesus. People want to be advocates of his philosophy, his way of life, but they certainly don't want to in any way actually highlight the fact that some type of blood sacrifice would need to be made. So culture has no problem with a bloodless Christianity. It it basically amounts to what one author has called uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's when you just try to follow the good advice and morals of Jesus 
and you don't have to worry about all that violent stuff. There, there's a second approach, though. That if approach one or option one is the popular approach, there is actually an approach uh, that has been advocated by many within the church. If option one is to edit it out, the option two would be to tone it down. Tone it down. It's not that we're going to deny that Jesus like, had to die for sin. It's not that God had, you know, we're going to deny that Jesus poured out his, I mean, that God poured out his wrath upon his son. But we just don't want to emphasize that. Basically, you, you hear this in preaching and where the sermons kind of skip to the good parts. I've been blown away, frankly, even as I've been studying the book of John. Like, I'm, I'm working my way through the discourse, and I'm trying to read some commentaries, and I'll get and I'll read other people who preach this. And people skip this. I'm not kidding. People skip this passage. Uh, popular author? Uh, Max Licato wrote a book on, on John. It's called Gentle Thunder. He skips the violent parts. <laughs> That, that's like, that doesn't publish books in our day. Therefore, it's like, um, you know, it's kind of like, oh, with nothing to see here, come look over here instead. You know, it's a tone it down. Let's, let's actually focus on the things that we like. You see it reflected in songs. Popular songs sung in many evangelical churches only target the emotions and generalities of God, such as His love or His power. We've joked around in our house, and I know I've used this phrase before, we call them boyfriend Jesus songs. They could be a love song about anybody. And yet they just happen to get uh, targeted to Jesus. Nobody in most churches is singing stricken, smitten, and afflicted. It's just an attempt to try to tone it down. I even think of the charismatic movement of late I mean, it first started in the early 1900s. It's had three different iterations over the last 100 years. But the crazy thing about uh, many of the, much of the emphasis there is that, ironically, in focusing on the Spirit, they've taken the attention off the cross. All of a sudden, people are enamored with, like back in the 90s, you know, like the laughing movement, or people rolling in the aisles, or people being healed in miraculous ways, uh, people's earaches being taken away, and things of this nature. And like, instead of truly the Holy Spirit who points to the crucified and risen again Jesus, they've become enamored with something else instead. Would they deny that Jesus died for sin? Absolutely not. They just tone it down. They want to practice something a little more relevant. Which is why when you hear most preaching, whether it be on TV or on the radio, it's emphasizing the practical aspects of Christianity, how it can make your marriage better, how it can make your parenting better, how it can make you healthier, wealthier, wiser than you've ever been in times past. Oh, sure, Jesus died, but, but here's the important thing. Your life can be better. And there's symptoms that come from this. I mean, frankly... It has an effect on us because when you turn the the attention away from what Jesus had to do to make us right with God, we're then left to still try to heal that on our own. There's a third option. Option one, edit it out. Option two, tone it down. Option three, play it up. Play it up. Don't just shy away from the violent aspects of the Christian faith and especially the sacrificial death of our Lord, but lean in. 
Like, let's just be explicit about what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And not hide it at all, but actually say, no, we're going to spend extra time here. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but in John 6 in particular, that's exactly what our Lord Jesus did. He didn't tone it down. He didn't edit it out. He played it up. I mean, he's given the spread of life discourse. It's very easy to follow. If you haven't been here with us over the last few weeks, it started off with this amazing miracle. He feeds all these people miraculously in the wilderness, 20,000 plus. And that's just like a preview of what he really wants to teach them. So the people hunt him down. They're misunderstanding why he's given out this bread in this miraculous way. They hunt him down. They find him at a synagogue in Capernaum. And so he begins to teach these hordes of people what he really wants them to know about that miracle. He gets to the meaning. They thought it was about physical, temporal. He's saying, no, it is about eternal and spiritual realities. I'm come to give you satisfaction eternally, relationship with God. You need to get it. It's not physical alone. It is spiritual. It is eternal. That was the number one thing he wanted them to get. They misunderstood at first, but you think they kind of get it. Well, in phase two of his speech to them, he needs them to understand something else. He's like, all right, if you get that it's spiritual, here's the next thing you need to get. I am that bread of life, and God sent me from heaven. Not just that I offer something to you generically, but whatever it is, it's in me, and God calls it to be in me. You know, we hit election a few weeks ago, and remember, election is something that we struggle with. They didn't care about the election part. What they were struggling with was the fact that Jesus said that he was from heaven. That was a problem. And so Jesus, in the last movement of this, has said, look, I'm from heaven. You've got to understand this. You've got to discern this. When you believe and come to me, you need to get the fact that I am not just another man. I am the one from God. And he says the same thing here. He's finished that up. He repeats again, I'm the bread of life. And he says twice, I'm the one that's come down from heaven. And then he adds that, that like inflammatory last phrase. Like he could have politically gotten away with the speech, said amen, uh, rolled up his Torah scroll and walked out of there unscathed if he would not have added the last few lines of verse 51. Look at it again in your Bible. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. (laughs) What does it say that they did when they heard this? Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? And you would think, okay, they're offended. They're offended by the fact that he's saying that he's going to have to sacrifice himself physically for their life. Uh, Maybe he could just skirt around it. Maybe he could soften his tone. And what does he do instead? He will repeat four times in four verses, my flesh, my blood. He will repeat three times in four verses, you must eat it and you must drink it. That is not editing it out. That is not toning it down. That is leaning in. He went all in on this. He wanted them to get it. And basically what he is disclosing for them and for us is that his sacrificial death is essential for eternal life. It isn't just that he offers something spiritual. It isn't just that he's from above. You need to grasp the fact that he would die for those that he came to save. 
And thus, this text shows us why Jesus' sacrificial death must be our sustenance, our food, our drink. Why? Why must something as violent as Jesus' sacrificial death be our sustenance? The text gives three reasons. They're very simple, very easy to follow. The first one is that this sacrificial death came from the Father. It came from the Father. What I mean by that was it was the Father's plan from the very beginning. This is what he wanted. He had orchestrated it this way. When you look through verses 48 to 51, he's leading up to this this closing statement of the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. But before you get there, notice how he keeps repeating that he is just like that manna that was sent back in Exodus 16. God was the one that provided that manna. Remember, they were in a wilderness, millions of people, nothing else to eat, and God radically intervened from the outside. And he provided manna. And Jesus is saying, in the same way that the Father radically intervened to save your fathers, he radically has intervened now to save you. And here's how he's going to do it. By sending me to die for you. He keeps saying, I came down from heaven. I came down from heaven. This isn't just something I'm doing on my own. This is something that God himself has orchestrated And that operative phrase is, then the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. But the grammar there is key. I don't want to geek out too much on this, but let's let's break down some words and let's break down some meanings. This is a very vital sentence. First of all, let's just focus on the word flesh. What do we mean by that? Well, thankfully, friends, this is one of those where like Greek and English line up pretty well. When I say the word flesh, what do you normally think of? You would think of that, you know, that which you can touch and feel, the, the organs, the muscles, tendons, blood. That's what flesh means. It was the same word used back in John 1.14 where it says the word became flesh, incarnate. He took on flesh. Now, Jesus is saying, I exist in flesh. He wasn't just some spiritual apparition. But notice this. He's going to give his flesh for the life of the world. Those three little letters, for, for. It it means also, like, it speaks of sacrifice or payment. Have you ever said it, like, on a hot summer day? Maybe you're out, you're, like, cutting the grass, and you're sweating like a dog, and you just kind of say out loud, what I wouldn't give for a glass of water. The preposition is saying, I'd pay a good deal of money. I'd pay a good deal of inconvenience to get a glass of water right now. That's the same way that it's used in the original language. This is an interesting uh, little phrase. It it could also be translated on behalf of or in the place of. So I, I want you to read it that way as we look at it again. And the bread that I will give... On behalf of the life of the world is my flesh. Or, and the bread that I will give in the place of the life of the world is my flesh. You get what I'm saying? He's talking about payment. It is this very same word that Jesus will use a few chapters later. You know it well. John 10, verses 11 and 15, where he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's talking about sacrifice. This was God's plan. 
When he sent this new bread down from heaven, it was going to be for the purpose of a substitute. Death was the penalty for sin, and so this bread would pay that penalty. This son would pay it. We read it in uh, Hebrews 9 today. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Uh, Friends, that's why I really like that old hymn that we sang, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, because it does a beautiful job at conveying the cost of sin. It says, you who think of sin lightly, look at what Jesus did on the cross. This is the payment. There is a penalty. It costs something. And Jesus fully paid that price, and we praise God for that. But this was the plan of the Father. This was what he intended to do all along. And this leads us to the second reason why Jesus' sacrificial death must be our sustenance. The first one is that it came from God. It was his plan from the beginning. The second one is that Jesus' sacrificial death causes eternal life. It causes eternal life. We need to embrace his sacrificial death on our behalf, not only because it came from God, but also because that is what causes eternal life in us. Now, this is where things get real. If there were any Jews still hanging with Jesus at this point, and they haven't walked away yet, and it seems that they haven't, it's in verse 60 that the crowd just kind of gives up on them. They're a little on edge. They're, they're grumbling at, they were grumbling back in verse 41 about him saying that he came down from heaven. You got a stronger verb here. It says they're disputing, they're arguing, they're protesting. I mean, could you imagine that? Like if I was saying something in here, we've only had this happen one time in the seven years I've been here where somebody interjects and starts like yelling out in the middle of a service. But that guy actually wasn't objecting to anything. Now that was disruptive for many of you. You talked about it for months. Could you imagine sitting in a church service where somebody is teaching and the, guy, and the, the people are saying, no, absolutely not, you can't mean that, there's no way, we don't eat flesh. Leviticus tells us that we don't eat flesh, we don't drink blood. I mean, like, that's exactly what's going on and Jesus just keeps teaching. And what he does is, is like, it's like he rubs it in, it's like he sticks his finger on the spot that like, hurts them the most and he's like, okay, I hear you. You're offended by the fact that I said that you're going to have to eat my flesh. Well, here's the deal. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Eat my flesh, drink my... Like, he's going to say it four times. (laughs) He, He leans in. But I want you to notice something, because you've been studying this with us for the last few weeks. Did you notice how he takes everything that he's promised so far in this bread of life discourse? And he now reruns it through the grid of partaking of his sacrificial death. So far, you think all these benefits come from just believing in Jesus generally, and that is true. But now he talks about all these benefits being true on account of his death. Now, the tr- let's, be, let's address the, um, the hardest issue of the text. Despite the ignorance of some and the overactive imagination of others, these verses by no means argue for any type of physical or spiritual cannibalism. I refer to spiritual cannibalism because that is a doctrine that is uh, popularly propagated in the Roman Catholic Church. I'll address it a little later. But on a literary level, Jesus here employs a metaphor 
a figure of speech, a word picture. He has already unpacked his bread metaphor back in verses 35 and 40. If you want to know what he's talking about by eating and drinking, look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How do you partake according to Jesus? Believe in me. Come to me. Look at verse 40. He's going to, he's already explained the metaphor again. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. To partake, he has already defined that as looking to him in faith, coming to him in faith. But now he's being graphic with this because he understands that they're going to struggle with the violent nature of his flesh and blood being torn for them. And it's true. Eating and drinking are both inherently violent. Now, I don't mean to ruin your lunch. I get it. We're all a little hungry. But I need you to think of something for a second. When we eat or when we drink, the life of something has been destroyed, consumed, and internalized for the good of another. Just think of bread. A once-living stalk of wheat is cut down, dried, beaten, ground, baked, broken, chewed, ingested, and absorbed, all for your nutritional benefit and enjoyment. The wine that would have regularly filled their cups in that day once required a, a living and thriving cluster of grapes to be plucked from its life-giving vine, thrown into a vat, squashed under the feet of the vintner until every last drop of life could be collected into vessels, which would then be imbibed by individuals who would absorb its life-giving nutrients into their own bodies. And partaking of eternal life offered by God the Father and Jesus is not merely to believe that he was a good man, a great teacher, or even a divinely empowered ruler. Rather, it is to take him in as the one who is crushed, destroyed, drained of life, disfigured, mangled, stricken, smitten, afflicted, so that all who believe in him or who partake of him can enjoy that same life in and of themselves. Do you see why the analogy works? Trusting in his sacrificial death reveals, I mean, some amazing benefits. Look at it as we just kind of follow through these few verses. Verse 54 says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, whoever believes in my sacrificial death has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day so they can have life with God now and they will enjoy resurrection life in the life to come. That comes from believing in his sacrificial death. Another benefit is mentioned in verses 55 and 56. After saying that his sacrificial death is true blood, I mean, excuse me, true food and true drink, he says in verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's going to unpack this more later, but he's going to say, like, I'm going to be so much a part of you and you're going to be so much a part of me that we're going to be one. Theologians call this union with Christ. On account of his sacrifice, you become one with him. And the analogy works. When, when you eat that bread or when you drink that juice or whatever it is you're going to have for lunch today, 
frankly, friends, it becomes a part of you, for better or worse, depending on what you eat. But it's there. And then one more benefit in verse 57, it says, As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. You share in the divine life. Just as Jesus eternally receives life from the Father, so also you will for eternity receive life from the Son. It's all because of that sacrifice. This is what causes the eternal life because of what Jesus did. And so I just want to point out something here that because there is great confusion, this is not referring to communion, dear friends. The analogy here is about the sacrificial death of Jesus. You say, Justin, why? Why would you make a big deal out of this? Like, uh, don't, aren't we believing in Jesus when we partake of communion? Don't get that confused with John 6. We, we've got a few issues. One, context. It is a year before Jesus' last supper. They would have no idea that he was referring to some symbolic meal that he was going to institute. The original audience had no context for communion. So, so context precludes this being anything related to communion or sacrament. The other is conflict. There's nothing here that Jesus is saying like you have to partake of this particular ceremony to uh, partake of me. He's already defined partaking of me as believing. In fact, they even asked one time, hey, how much does this cost? What works can we do to get this kind of bread? And Jesus says, hey, here's the work of the Father that you believe in me whom he has sent. Jesus would not contradict himself in this way. So there's context, there's conflict, and then there's content. Just frankly, this will help you in your discussions with other people. Jesus uses the word flesh here, not the word body. They're two totally different words. When he sets up the communion ordinance a year later, he's going to say, take, eat, this is my body, soma. This is flesh, sarks. The word flesh is never used to refer to communion in the New Testament. You say, Justin, why? what's the big deal? Who cares? Well, I want to make sure that you're feeding on the right thing. How dangerous would it be for somebody to actually think that because they partook of some kind of wafer or some kind of cup of juice that all of a sudden they got eternal life? There's nothing in that juice, there's nothing in that bread that ultimately brings about salvation. And I need to say this carefully, I want to say this kindly, but it is in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Mass, every week, right now, at the churches around us. They are teaching that the bread and wine mysteriously become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. The priest will stand in front of those elements and proclaim hoc corpus mus est. And supposedly when he gives that Latin incantation something mysterious. If you were critical and wanted to make fun of it, you would say magical. But I, I'm, I'm trying to be respectful. They would say that something mysteriously takes place so that when you actually eat that bread, once it's in you, it turns into the flesh of Jesus, and so does the wine become his blood. In fact, that very same inscription, hot corpus mus est, is where many people believe the term hocus-pocus comes from. Something magical took place. Friends, I warn you, this text is saying that life only comes from partaking of the sacrifice of Jesus and nothing else.
That's what causes eternal life. Jesus is what causes eternal life, not anything outside of him. And so I ask you the rather graphic question, have you ingested the sacrifice of Jesus? I love this, um, this old Anglican bishop. His name's J.C. Ryle. He was like alive and well in the late 1800s, and he just had this way of being timeless and simple. Here's how he explains uh, what it means to feed on Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. He says, whenever a man, feeling his own guilt and sinfulness, lays hold on Christ and trusts in the atonement made for him by Christ's death, in that way he eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood. Have you appropriated the sacrifice of Christ? Have you fed on that? Interesting, one more little grammatical detail. All these verbs here are aorist. They're not ongoing. Keep feeding, keep eating. It's just have you at some time in your life appropriated what Jesus has done for you by faith? and thereby receive that life and benefit. So, Jesus sacrifices our sustenance insofar as it came from the Father, caused eternal life, and finally, it's very simple, Jesus' sacrificial death conquers the inadequacies of the Old Covenant. This is a big deal. We should consume of Jesus' sacrifice because it conquers the inadequacies of the Old Covenant. Look at verses 58 and 59. You'll get what I'm saying. Here's how he sums it up. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He repeats what he just said earlier. He's, remember, he's repealing back to that story in the Old Testament and what he's saying is that was a pretty cool event, right? I mean, if you think about what it would be like for you to be there. I mean, here it is, you and your family, there's nothing else to eat, and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and there's bread on the ground just like dew shows up on a Florida summer morning. It's like all over the place. And that was so cool to them, and that's what they originally wanted. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that happened. Indeed, that happened. That's, that's exactly what happened. But here's the deal. There, there was a problem with that. Those people still died. And you're like, well, duh, Jesus. I mean, like, yeah, of course they died. But Jesus here isn't just talking about their physical death. He is saying that even though they partook of that miraculous manna, they did not receive the eternal life that he himself is promising. Let me translate it into like 21st century, just basic evangelicalism terms for you. They were still lost and went to hell. Even though... They partook of something as cool as a miracle, like a real miracle. They still died lost and went to hell. And Jesus says, you, even if something miraculous like that happened, I'm offering something better in my sacrifice because you will be saved and go to heaven. You will have eternal life. You will have relationship with the Father and you will enjoy resurrection unto life in the time to come. It conquers the inadequacies of the Old Covenant. I think that some of us have a tendency at times to think, man, wouldn't it have been cool 
To be in those times and in those ages and in those seasons where God was just radically invading the natural order. Like, wouldn't you have liked to have seen the plagues? Wouldn't you have liked to have seen that manna show up? Wouldn't you have liked to see quail up to your knees and you just, like, reach out and grab it and cook it? I mean, like, there are all kinds of, like, amazing things that happen. And we think, you know what? If I could just, like, have lived back then, man, I would really believe. Man, my faith would be on fire. If I understand the text correctly, you could have experienced all that and you still would have been on fire in hell forever apart from what Jesus himself would need to do 1,500 years later. This is why I think it's wise for us as a church to, to think carefully about this tendency that some churches have to try to like play up the extravagant and to downplay the cross, to, to try to entertain, uh, to try to attract, try to do whatever it takes like, to get a crowd. Look, frankly, friends, we could do a uh, hundred amazing things to like pack out the building, and yet the truth is, unless people are drawn to the sacrificial death of Jesus, there is no salvation. Who cares about a crowd if they're still condemned? Jesus is saying, don't be enamored with the old covenant. It did not provide life. So what? There was miracles. But now you have the meaning of the miracle, which was the ultimate provision. The one who would satisfy God's wrath for sin and then show his power over it through his resurrection. This is huge. That's why I love that passage in Hebrews. I get it. It was, it was long. It's hard to stick with. But go back and read Hebrews 9, 11 to the end of the chapter again. Where it talks about the significance of what Christ did in his death over anything that was accomplished in that miraculous time in the Exodus. Friends, we should find ourselves ever obsessed with our crucified Messiah. This was the apostolic pattern for the church. Hear me. Hear me well. Because I get it. You're going to invite friends to church sometimes, and you're like, man, I wish that would have been a little more interesting. I wish the songs were a little faster. I wish he would have told a cooler story. Like, I get it. Trust me, I know of anybody. I know. But you know what we're striving for? We. This is not the royal we. This is we as a church family are striving for, especially if you're a guest here today. We're striving for that which Paul himself strove for in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Later, he would reaffirm, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Such is not the case with many who claim to be churches. The bloody sacrifice of Jesus is something of which they are ashamed or something of which they have forgotten. And so I tell you, you could visit here today, go somewhere else. We are not the only gospel-preaching church in town. I know it. We pray for others regularly. But beware, my friends. I am telling you, just in all the kindness of my heart, beware of particular places that claim to be churches of Jesus that have something else other than the cross of Jesus at the center. 
I don't care if it's prosperity or miracles or healings or power or practical living or tradition or history or a personality or a brand. If it's not the cross of Jesus, you may find yourself still condemned. And I say to you, church family, that that is true of things now in this church, but it's weird. Have you ever thought about this? Churches have life cycles just like people do. Like, are there not, are there not churches that you knew of in days gone by that were faithfully preaching the gospel and that had the crucified Jesus at the center and then somehow moved on to something else? Who's responsible for that? It's not just the elders of the church. It is the church. If you sense a drift here, you better speak up. That's why we, we, we vote on things. That's why we pray for things together. That's why we have town hall meetings. It is not just up to me or up to the elders. It is up to us to see Jesus remain at the center of what is done here. So why play it up? Why lean in on the bloody sacrifice of Jesus for sins? Jesus says it. This is how he closes. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The speech is done. But here's what's clear. His sacrificial death must be our sustenance. Why? Because it came from the Father. It causes eternal life, and it conquers the inadequacies of the old covenant. I'll finish with a story. On Monday, Alice bought a parrot. It didn't talk. So the next day, she returned to the pet store. He needs a ladder, she was told. So she bought a ladder. But another day passed, and that parrot still didn't say a word. How about a swing? The clerk suggested. So Alice bought a swing. The next day, a mirror. The next day, a miniature plastic tree. The next day, a shiny parrot toy. And on Sunday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened, and she had the parrot in the cage in her hand, tears in her eyes. Her parrot was dead. Did it ever say a word? The owner asked. Yes, Alice said through her sobs. Right before he died, he looked at me and asked, don't they sell any food at that pet store? I take that from the book, The Cross-Centered Life. The author adds this comment. Many good causes and activities can occupy a Christian's time and attention. But just as no amount of parrot cage amenities can make up for a lack of parrot food, nothing can replace the gospel in a Christian's life. Without it, our souls become like Alice's pet, starving in a crowded cage. I ask you, dear friends, on what do you feed? From whence do you derive life? Not just for this day, 
but for relationship with God in the present, for resurrection, life, and eternity to come. There are alternatives out there. There are things that seem good and wise and right to have as the center of your life, to have as the rock, to have as the anchor. It could be things like family, and it could even be things like church, and it could be homeschooling, or it could be the pro-life movement, or it could be providing for yourself and your loved ones. But what really matters, friends, is what Paul says is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. You could be so close, so far away. Have you partaken of eternal life and the sacrificed and risen again, Lord Jesus? If you have, He is indeed our center. He is our Lord, sacrificed for our sin, risen again. And we believe, friends, just as a reminder, we believe not just the teachings of Jesus or the existence of Jesus or the philosophy of Jesus or even the deity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus. We believe in the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin. His resurrection from the grave is proof that that payment had been fully satisfied and that his life is now ours by faith. And so I ask these two questions. Have you eaten? Have you eaten? And aren't you satisfied? Friends, you could look at the bread. You could appreciate the bread. You could smell the bread. I mean, like you, you can get close to it. You can come every week and think about it. But it is of no benefit to you unless you partake by faith. Have you eaten? Second, aren't you satisfied? (laughs) What else do you need? I joked around the other week about the Sears Roebuck catalog coming out in November and convincing me of all these things that I thought I needed when I really had what I ultimately needed. Let me... um, Let me put a positive spin on this. We need to continue to look at how much our sin cost and how much Jesus himself paid for it and thereby overcome those temptations. It isn't like we just need to see the others as cheap substitutes. We need to realize that we truly have already been satisfied. My... My daughter joked around with me the other day. I came home to get a salad. And she's like, Dad, do you get this, like, in this mood? And this is going to sound funny to y'all. She says, you get in this mood where you're, like, salad happy. I'm like, what? I think most people would be salad distressed. She's like, you could just, I can tell that you're eating something that you think is healthy and you're not going to feel bad in the afternoon. I'm like, huh, maybe I am salad happy. (laughs) You know, I would contrast that with, like, Dorito happy. <laughs> Man, those Doritos may seem to taste good, but you feel like junk afterward, you know. Friends, we've been 
satisfied, like the, the sustenance, like what our soul needs, we have. There, there's a happiness, there's a, a joy, there's a satisfaction that comes from that. We're not just weepy going around, oh, Jesus. Died. No, Jesus died and rose again. Things are well with our soul. I'm not telling you anything. I'm just reminding you of what you already know. Good news, friends. Leave out of here today knowing it's been taken care of. And look, I say that. I say, this matters. Man, this matters so much because a Saturday night stinks for a lot of people. Should have seen my house last night. Think of expressions of anger that happen, or I think of ways that in the dark moments of night that certain men or women will partake of some form of lust. They feel so defeated. They feel empty. They feel like they are failing. They feel like they haven't done enough. They feel like God is somehow angry with them. And yet we come to church to be reminded that Christ died for that. He paid for that. It is done. He's risen again. And you have eternal life. It's paid. It's good. So be encouraged. I want to pray for us. Before I do, I want to explain our closing song. It's normally a song that people use to open a service. I will arise and go to Jesus. But I want to sing it as an invitation to leave the service. That when we leave here, We don't just leave what we think of Jesus here, but we continue to go to Jesus through this week knowing that his body has been broken, he has bled, he has died, has satisfied God's wrath, he has risen again, all is well. May may we resolve to step out of here satisfied, having partaken by faith of the crucified Son. Let's pray. Father, you sent your Son to give us eternal life. This was your plan, so we praise you. And yet, Lord Jesus, it was your payment, so we praise you. It's your sacrifice. So thank you for laying down your life on our behalf, and we praise you, O Holy Spirit, for drawing our attention to this crucified one, or for making us aware of our need, and then satisfying us with that opening our eyes to the beauty of Christ and what he's accomplished on our behalf. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you would not only keep us satisfied, but that others even now would come to know this satisfaction by faith in the crucified and risen again, Lord. May salvation happen here today for those who have yet to partake of the bread of life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.